how we have defined strong leaders in the past, it's the loudest person in the room. It's the person who plays politics. It's the person who negotiated a bigger salary. It's the person who spoke up the most and asked and pushed. Those are not typical qualities that women present in the workplace. And instead of trying to fix women and try to teach them how to be more that way, we should really be disrupting how we define a good leader. A good leader is not necessarily the loudest person in the room. A good leader is the person who listens. A good leader is someone who inspires and empowers their team to thrive. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. TDW fans, I am so excited to introduce you to my dear friend, Erin Halper. I have known Erin for 25 years since her last name was Yaffe. We met freshman year at George Washington University in D.C. And even then, let me tell you, folks, it was clear this woman was going places. We've shared a lot of memories and stories over the year, great and not so great meals, Life in Manhattan after college, relationship ups and downs, work and career evolutions, the passing of our fathers, becoming parents, and more than a few late nights in the club. Erin has always impressed me with her strong and well-formulated opinions on just about everything she cares about, her no-holds-barred approach to advice giving, which makes her an incredible trusted advisor but also bring some tissues and be ready to cry if you're not ready to face the music. Above all, Erin cares so much about living this one precious life to the very fullest and helping the people that she cares about do the same, which brings us to her incredible work. Erin is the founder and CEO of The Upside, the leading authority on independent consulting. Since launching The Upside in 2017, Erin has helped thousands of professionals transition from corporate life to independent consulting to achieve flexibility, autonomy, and a renewed sense of purpose in their careers. Prior to launching The Upside, Erin built a thriving seven-year consulting career where she worked directly with private equity clients across New York City, doubling her former full-time earnings while working a fraction of the hours she worked in the corporate world. Erin is a frequent speaker at Columbia, NYU, Harvard, and Brown, and has also been featured as a leading future of work expert in Forbes, Business Insider, NASDAQ, Crunchbase, and in many podcast interviews that will not be as good as this one. Erin, it is such a delight to have you on our show. Thanks, Alex. Wow, what an intro. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you for that. Of course, of course. And just wonderful to see you. And Wonderful to have this moment to sit down and chat with you and, and, and touch on all these amazing things that you're doing. So, all right, before we talk about your journey as an entrepreneur, the amazing business you've built, and all the people whose careers are thriving because of you, tell us first about the worst job you've ever had. 
I love this question. I have to say it was probably like many people. It was my first job out of college. So Alex, you and I graduated in a really bad year. So we graduated college in 01, which terrible economy. There were no jobs to be had. I kind of just took whatever job I could find at that point. So I was somebody's assistant at a beauty slash accessories company. And it was bad because I was working for someone who was incompetent, working on a product I could care less about with crap pay and no chance for advancement. Um, So all those things made it pretty much a recipe for an awful, awful experience. And the next job wasn't much better. The difference was I actually loved the work at the next job. But, you know, I think it just started with having a bad boss. You know, that just, and we can, we're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to talk think a lot about that. Did that plant the seed in you for a desire to become an entrepreneur? I mean, was it that early on that you were starting to think about, hey, I can do this better on my own? I mean, I was thinking about that when I was five years old. I I was constantly inventing things, constantly coming up with business ideas, even when I was little. Um, I come from a family of business owners who came from a family of business owners who came from a family of business owners. We only have business owners in our family. So it just was kind of naturally, that was always what was going to be. So no, that didn't plant the seed, but it it did tell me a lot about the path I wanted to be on. I think I I had thought, oh, I'm going to be this big executive at a fancy company at a name that everyone recognizes. And I think there was, I, I realized once I started in that industry that, and it was like the beauty industry, I realized I only really wanted that for validation, which was a really stupid reason. It just immediately, I realized I'd made the wrong choice. And yet that's what I really thought I was going to do. and. I went in a complete opposite direction. So we got all late. We all got laid off after September 11th, 2001. And I was thrilled because it gave me an opportunity to start over. And, and I was obviously on unemployment, which was actually the same amount I was making. That's how little I was paid at the time. So I was making the same amount without having to work and being able to focus full time on finding the right move. And that's when I went into the private equity finance world. I, I just said, I need to be in a place where people can move further faster instead of being in a place where they literally said, well, in two years, you can move from assistant to associate. I was like, yeah, so it's been six months and I have crushed this job and I've already mastered everything. And I really just can't picture myself doing this for another 18 months and getting your coffee for 18 more months. Like it just not going to happen. So I, there was a, and I'll tell you a funny story and then we can move on from this toxic situation. <laughs> And this is a true story. She came over to my desk one day with, it was a green apple. I can remember it like it was yesterday, although it was 21 years ago. She came over with a green apple and put it on my desk. And she said, I need you to wash this for me. You gotta be kidding me. And I literally said to her, in the time it took you to walk over to my desk, put it on the desk and ask me to wash it for you, you could have just washed it yourself. Dinosaur leadership. Dinosaur. I was like, I was like, this is, uh, this is insane. This person is absolutely insane. That is horrific. That's a lot more about control than it is about cleaning an apple. So let's talk about creating the upside. Before you started the upside, you started noticing gaps. You started noticing problems in your brain. As you just said, your brain is 
looking for ways to be an entrepreneur anyway. So you start seeing these early indicators about being an entrepreneur. What, what, what did you see and how is that formative to building the upside? I would say it started when I consult, started consulting. So I launched my consultancy when I was around 30. Um, I had just gotten married and I launched it because I was like, oh, I want more flexibility and I want to control my hours and I want to build something for myself. I knew I wanted to start a family soon. No, nobody advised me. Nobody told me it would be difficult. And so it wasn't. Then fast forward a couple of years, I had my first son and he's a perfectly healthy 11-year-old today, everybody. But he was not healthy when he was born and he required multiple surgeries, dozens, maybe hundreds at this point of doctor's appointments. And when I was sitting at Columbia Children's Hospital in that, in that hospital room with him after his first heart surgery, I was looking around at some of the other kids' rooms. It was like a fishbowl. All the walls were glass in, in the PICU. And a lot of those kids didn't have their parents there not because the parents didn't love them or want to be with them, but because they had to work. You know, we I was able to stay in the hospital with my son 24 hours a day. And it was only because I had already started my consultancy. I had my laptop with me. I was able to juggle while he was sleeping. I was able to get some work done. My clients understood. I took a step back. Um, they said, take your time. Can't do that with a full-time job. Maybe today you can sometimes, but especially you're talking 11 years ago, that was unheard of. So I thought it, that's where the seed was first planted because I thought, well, gosh, isn't that unfair that these parents can't be with their children 24 hours a day for the next two weeks because they have to work? That's where the seed was first planted. Now, I knew I was never going to scale the consultancy because the consultancy to me was always a stepping stone. It was always a bridge to whatever was next. It was a way for me to work, make good money, control my hours while I was having my kids. That was really the intention. I even had clients who offered to back me financially to build this thing out because mm. they thought there was such a big opportunity and they knew I had a wait list of clients. And I said, it, I, I just, it's not what I want to be doing long-term. That's not going to be the business. I didn't know what the business was going to be, but I knew that's what it wasn't going to be. Fast forward seven years later, we're talking 2016 leading into 2017. So there was a major election that year that everyone was very passionate about. I also started seeing something very unusual and it bothered me. I started seeing this huge, huge rise in multi-level marketing advertisements. I started getting all these pings on Facebook, um, which I am no longer on, by the way, but at the time I was, pings on Facebook um, saying, join my team. You want to join my team? I'm selling this XYZ shake company. I'm selling vitamins. I'm selling skincare. And I'm like, I went to college with these people. I'm like, you have a college education. And this is a commission-based, 100% commission-only sales position. You can call it what you want, but that is what it is. And I do think it's a good opportunity for a lot of people. So there's no shame in it. But it bothered me because I thought, why did you spend a gazillion dollars going to GW to sell skincare on commission? And I said to some of these people, well, why didn't you, why don't you consult? Why don't you go out and do what you do, but consulting? And they said, well, I don't know how to do that. How did you do that? How do you do that? 
And, and that's, that's where it really began. I was like, you know what? There's a lot of people I'm seeing. And again, it started with women. It started in my demographic. So you're talking about women, college educated with kids. That's what I thought it was for sure. And Alex knows, cause he heard about this from the very beginning. It was moms. That was the market. What surprised me was how many people outside of that demographic were doing this and were saying, I'm not happy. Millennials, you know, at the time you're talking now six, seven years ago. So people in their early thirties saying, I'm not married. I don't have kids, but I want to live awful, you know, out of a suitcase. I want to live six months in, you know, in Brazil. I want to travel the world. I I don't want to be tied down. I did not expect that whatsoever. So the problem that I was out to solve was how do I solve the problem of people who want to work, they're passionate about their work, but they don't want to be forced to decide between working full-time or not working at all. That was the real problem I saw because I had that middle ground and I thought, well, I'm doing it. It's not that hard. Why can't everybody else do this too who wants it? Well, very serendipitous because the, you know, foreshadowing the pandemic pandemic happens and people all over start looking for that thing. I I don't want to be tied down to this. I want to make my own hours. The world's in a crazy place. I have a family. We have unique needs. I think it's a very serendipitous that you were able to create that in advance of when the world was going to move into the place where, you know, millions of people are looking for this solution. Well, Nate, my crystal ball told me that there would be a big <laughs> pandemic two years later. And the droves of corporate professionals were going to be bailing, looking yes, for your solution. <laughs> I had the crystal ball. So sorry that you don't have that. <laughs> what would you say are the three traits or characteristics of a successful independent consultant? Well, limiting it to three is a little tough. I'd, I'd say number one, focus. So I think you have to be focused on what impact you're going to make, what you're providing for clients, the solution that you're, you're, you're providing. The mistake I see a lot of people make and where I see people stumble is, you know, they, they want to be all things to all people because they can, they, they're so talented. They can do so much, but everybody can. If you have 20 years of work experience, you can do more than one thing. So I think having that focus of what you're going to provide, what you're going to do and who you're going to do it for is really important. Number two is confidence in yourself. It is not easy being an entrepreneur. You have to have a lot of resilience. It's going to be confusing. You will get rejected a lot, ghosted. You have to have confidence in yourself, in your abilities, and you have to have something that backs up that expertise. So if you're 25 and you're like, I'm a consultant, consultant in what? What experience do you have? What is the expertise that substantiates your business? Um, and then I'd say the third thing is commitment. You know, you, you've got to be committed to it. People who are tasters and, and triers, that's a tough business to build if you're tasting and trying. It's full-time, committed, you're, you're going to build it and you don't ever want to go back. People who are willing to go back into a full-time position, a W-2 role, don't usually do well in consulting because they're not going to give it their all. Well, there's something difficult there in this uh, disrupted future work is it's playing out right now, which is W-2 is comfortable. It's easier. You have the backing of this company. 
you know, you're going to get your check every week, no matter what, you don't have to go hunt to do, you know, so there's a lot of comforts there for people. But if I hear you right, you're saying you've got to get through that to get to the other side, to really know the other side, because if you can't get through that, you're just going to go back to that W2. Well, Nate, you know, if I'm hungry for dinner, I can put a, a microwave meal in, press the button and it's done. I'd rather chop my own vegetables and saute and make something that is my own and healthy. The easy way is not always the best way. And, and it's certainly not the safest way. I personally would bet on myself before I'd ever bet on a company for in in my 20 years of, of working. I learned very, very quickly and very early on that they don't care. You think they care. They don't. So personally, I'd rather bet on myself. Yeah, there's a false sense of security in large corporations where people, and and particularly generations before, said this is the safe way. You're gonna get, you know, your pension. You're gonna get your 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 gold watch, and you're gonna be able to ride off into the sunset into your retirement. Well, that's no longer there, and it's there's a false sense of safety that I think was largely eroded through the pandemic, where now people are are definitely looking toward what you're doing in other platforms to go. Is it possible for me to bet on myself? So I love that. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about pensions and this and that. I mean, I'm building equity. You know, our, our consultant, you know, people, if you build a consultancy, you can build something that's sellable. You're building intellectual property and frameworks, possibly scaling a business that can be absorbed by a bigger agency. I mean, that to me is, is, is the pension. Right. Speaking of disruption, you know, we're in one of the most disrupted periods in human history. There's no question about that. And it's just getting started. It's not ending anytime soon. Um, the stories tend to be about big corporations. Those, that's what's in the media. That's what's in the headlines. But what about independent consulting? You know, what is the story over the last three years of independent consulting and how has it changed? I'd say the biggest way it has changed, and this is very exciting to me, and it was an immediate change in 2020, was the globalization of consulting. It's hard to imagine, but it used to be. And when I started this company in 2017, it was that consultants pretty much were limited to their geography. Consultants worked physically with clients on location. Clients would not want to hire a consultant that wasn't geographically near them, which you're thinking, you're probably like, how is that even possible? But that is actually what it was. All of a sudden the pandemic hit and consulting became global. So now someone in LA can easily pitch and win a client in New York. That did not happen before the pandemic. It did here and there if you were a superstar, sure. But for the most part, it didn't. So it expanded everyone's client opportunities tremendously. So what used to be maybe you had a couple thousand possible clients to work with became millions. So that is, the, I think it's so exciting. And that's the biggest shift I saw. The second shift is, now we already existed before the pandemic, but companies like mine designed to support consultants started cropping up. Because everyone started seeing there's a market for this. And so we started seeing a lot of other players entering the market, which I really welcomed, quite honestly, because, you know, you don't want to be the only the only player on the street. You know, you want you want other people in the space because it substantiates what you do. Um, So so I was actually very excited to see 
other players coming in and and trying to help, trying to solve the problem, but from their different perspectives. I would love to talk about women in the workplace. Which oh, I- you love talking about women, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just I like it. just talking about my wife, to be specific. <laughs> Good save. Yeah. So there is some new research from Lean In and McKinsey that there's a new trend in the workplace nowadays, and it's not the great resignation, the great reset, or the great regret. This one is being called the great breakup. And women leaders are leaving their companies at the fastest rate on record. And the reasons that are being listed are unmet needs around career advancement, flexibility, employee well-being, and DE&I needs, all things that Nate and I have been talking about a lot on the podcast. And there are more reasons, and the research is showing that women on average are still taking on more responsibility in the home, doing more work that is unrecognized in the workplace, and as a result are experiencing higher levels of stress and burnout. All that said, Lean In CEO Rachel Thomas notes that women, quote unquote, don't want to take their foot off the gas. They want to work for organizations that remain committed to the things they value and driving a positive change. Talk to us about this. Is this what you're hearing from clients who are leaving the typical nine to five corporate structures? What else is going on and how do we make sense of it? This has been happening for decades, Alex. Decades. It's Shocking to me that this is so shocking to everybody else. This is what I was hearing back in 2016 when I was formulating the business plan for the upside. This is all the reasons why women, and it's not just women, it's women, it's men, it's non-binary, it's black, it's brown, it's white, it's everybody. It's not just women. Um, I would say women, yes, but it's more marginalized groups, traditionally marginalized groups, women being the largest of that group, of course. But within that category, there's other groups as well. And of course, there's men who fall into that category. Also, the biggest difference is people now feel the confidence to speak up and to walk out. They feel like they finally have enough of an upper hand that they can land on their feet, find a new job, start negotiating. Before, for for many years, we were taught to be grateful for the opportunity, be grateful for the job. We'd go into interviews hoping and praying that we would maybe get chosen and don't negotiate too hard. You might look greedy. You might lose the opportunity. Um, So we were just conditioned to be grateful for the opportunity, be grateful for the job. And now people realize I don't, I don't need to be grateful for this opportunity. They need to be grateful for me. I'm the one, I'm the one helping them build this company. I'm the one making the money and I'm done. So to your point, this has been happening for a really long time, but it's the inflection of confidence and this feeling of having the upper hand that's leading to the acceleration. Because to your point, yes, we are seeing this. People are breaking up with companies all over the place, no matter what your identification. Agreed. But I'm kind of trying to make sense of why is it accelerating so much, statistically speaking, just looking at the statistics amongst women in this moment. People are just so burnt out. I mean, during the pandemic, you were a single dad and you only had your son half the time. So imagine you had your son with you all day long and you were trying to work. And your son's the same age as my kid, one of my kids, or roughly the same age. 
they, they can't do, they couldn't do their classwork online by themselves. We had to sit with them. Mine was learning to read that year. I don't know how to teach someone how to read. So it just the burnout from juggling work at home plus children at home absolutely just, it just pulled the rug out from everybody, particularly women, particularly women. And similar to an abusive relationship, he told me it would get better. He told me he would change. So I went back to him and you know what? He didn't change. He still treated me like crap. So that's what happened. The company said, no, we're changing. We're bringing in DEI people and we're we're launching women leadership circles in our company. Without financial backing on those, that means nothing. That means nothing. If they're not going to put money where their mouths are, it means absolutely nothing. So women went back to work. They went back to their careers. They went back to the office only to find he didn't change. He told me he would change and he didn't. And we've all been in relationships like that. There's nothing different about this situation. And finally, she said, I'm out the door. I'm leaving you. Is the balance of power shifting in that in the past, everybody just had, like you said, had had been conditioned to accept the conditions of the large corporations. And I have to do this. And, oh, I'm so grateful to have a job and that sort of thing. And now it seems like there are more and more people choosing you know what? I don't have to be grateful for this. I can go create something different. And there are more opportunities to create than ever before outside of the traditional confines. And it's not about making anyone bad at all. It's saying, hey, it seems like the balance of power is shifting here. And now corporations are sort of racing going, oh no, we have a talent problem. (laughs) We need to find a way to get people back inside. There's such a talent problem, but now I'm an optimistic person. But it's so broken that I'm not sure, I really don't know how they're going to fix it. Because when you have the decision makers, let's go all the way up to the boardroom. If you look around an an advisory board, the boardroom of a public company, you're going to see all white men. Mm -hmm. Maybe there will be one token woman, maybe one token black person. That's it. When you have people at the top making decisions for everybody and they don't represent everybody, that's when you have the biggest problem. It all comes from the top. The reason why boards are so lacking for diversity and why C-suite is lacking for diversity is because the pool of people is not big enough as we've defined the pool. Mm. The problem is how we define a strong leader, how we have defined strong leaders in the past. It's the loudest person in the room. It's the person who plays politics. It's the person who negotiated a bigger salary. It's the person who spoke up the most and asked and pushed. Those are not typical qualities that women present in the workplace. And instead of trying to fix women and try to teach them how to be more that way, We should really be disrupting how we define a good leader. A good leader is not necessarily the loudest person in the room. A good leader is the person who listens. A good leader isn't one who forces productivity out of their team. A good leader is someone who inspires and empowers their team to thrive. We have to really reevaluate how we're defining good leaders 
And, and, and I think that's where it all starts. And I'm not sure enough people are talking about that. Reinvent that pipeline. It's representative of the country that we live in. Let's tie that to the ongoing erosion of an old belief that the corporation will take care of you. So we kind of touched on this and, and, and consulting definitely has a piece of this story. It's this idea that, you know, grandparents told their kids and now our, par- our parents told us and now we're having a very different conversation with our kids. But it's this idea that the corporation will take care of you. Go work at a big company and you're going to get great benefits and you're going to get bonuses and, and you might have profit sharing and stock options someday and you could be a leader in this whole thing. But that's really eroding right now. And, and a lot of organizations were quick to lay people off, were quick to furlough, were quick to cut their workforce, you know, and, and go remote and this sort of thing. And people kind of felt like, hey, well, you just dropped me like I was hot. <laughs> like, do I matter to you anymore? And I think it's really causing people to say, hey, maybe this thing isn't as safe as I thought it was. You know, are you seeing more people who are coming into your business kind of rethinking that idea of the corporate job isn't the only way forward anymore? There's actually a, a better opportunity. And like you said, I can have more control. I can bet on me if I do something else. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it that, that there's that huge shift in mindset around the company will take care of me. I think we saw... In, during the pandemic that companies just were not, they, they showed a lot of their true colors, didn't they? Now that's not every company. There's so many companies that really do take there care of good their people. For sure. There's some great examples, wonderful examples. Those companies have different types of leaders. They have different founders, CEOs than the companies you're referring to. Mm-hmm. So since the pandemic, what I've seen people say the most often is I've got nothing to lose at this point. Mm. I think before the pandemic, they felt like, well, I have this pension or I've got this 401k, I've got a steady salary, benefits. I can't afford to lose those things. Now they're saying, I've got nothing to lose at this point. And I think in any scenario, business or personal, when you reach a point where you have nothing to lose, you're willing to take those risks. Mm-hmm. Most people find that going out on their own is a risk. I did not feel that way. I thought the opposite. I, I thought staying was a risk, but I'm born and bred entrepreneur. So that's how I think. Most people don't think that way. I think that companies have to reevaluate that sense of belonging to keep people in their seats. Without a sense of belonging, without a sense of community, without a sense of purpose for your people, it's just too easy for them to say, I've got nothing to lose. If it's a paycheck and that's it, that's a transaction. And we're learning now that transactional anything, whether it's transactional networking, transactional jobs, they don't keep people around. Or when you feel like a transaction. So a very personal story from our, our life, my wife and I, in the pandemic is um, my wife was working for a company pandemic happened. And one morning I was, I was down here working. She's upstairs working. She came downstairs and goes, I just got laid off. And I go, huh? (laughs) You know, and it was right in the thick of the pandemic. The kids are home and she's just looking at me with this stunned look on her face. Like I, I did not see this coming. And their organization figured out that within 48 hours, they had over laid off people. They had laid off too many people. Her leader came back to her 48 hours later and goes, uh, whoops, we, didn't mean to do that. Gosh, sorry. I feel really sheepish right now. 
And the thing that happened is not making anyone bad at all. I know organizations are trying to survive and I know leaders are trying to have difficult conversations. And frankly, a lot of people haven't been prepared to do any of this well. (laughs) But the thing that was fascinating was it fundamentally eroded the trust and belonging in the organization. Am I safe? Do I belong? Can I see my future here? No. Right. The minute someone, it's like dating someone and having them walk into the room and go, Hey, we're done. Hey, hold on. 48 hours later, can we like patch things up? Are we good now? (laughs) Like, no, we're not good now. And it didn't matter that whatever was said after that point, the idea of trust and belonging was fundamentally eroded. Yeah, it's a cracked foundation. And I use a lot of analogies with dating versus jobs because it's there's a lot of similarities. And I I, I do use those a lot. It is it's correct. Like once the foundation has a crack in it, you can build the building on it, but it'll never be fully secure. Right. Completely agree. And I think this thread of what does good leadership look like, what does bad leadership look like? And your insights on that are really, really important. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you today is that I know you have strong views on leadership and how it's changing and what are the skills now. So I think we can definitely and should jump into belonging more as a core leadership ability and how do you create that and have you done that in your business. But I just want to double click first on one last thing on, I think uh, that I believe is, is truly egregious in, in, in company leadership, which is this idea of employee monitoring. There's this shocking data point that we discovered over the summer that eight out of 10 of the largest private employers in the U S are tracking productivity. And this ranges from keyboard monitoring to what programs you're using And some employees are even getting things like mouse jigglers to show that they're on their machines. I mean, this is incredibly big brother. It's Orwellian. It's unconscionable. And yet it's going on. And on top of that, all of your offline work is not being tracked. So workers are are going completely bananas saying, hey, you know, how is this really measuring what I'm, I'm doing and why am I getting, you know, a paycheck that doesn't reflect all the hours that I put in? So I'm curious to know, have your clients as independent consultants encountered this and on the leadership front in terms of not making band-aids, as you put it, but really thinking about fixing the system and fixing a crack foundation? How do you create the trust to get productivity from your, from your employees without doing these insane practices? Spying on them. It's just lazy. That's all. It's just lazy management. It's just, it is so lazy. That's, that's all it's chalked up to. It's not this like big to do. It's just laziness. And the fact of the matter is hours do not equal output. When I was first going into consulting, that first seed that was planted that really made me want to start my own consultancy. It was an August day. It was beautiful outside. Now I was working in private equity. So all my colleagues, the, you know, my senior executives, my, my PM, they were gone. It's August in the private equity equity world. It is closed. They were on their yachts, on vacation, doing God knows what. And I'm sitting there in the office in New York City in an air conditioned office on a beautiful August day. And I thought to myself, 
there is literally nothing to do, no one to report to, no work to be done, yet I have to sit here. I also felt like many times I was so efficient. I was so good at what I did. I could do it in my sleep, literally do it in my sleep. And I thought to myself, why am I penalized for being really good at what I do? In other words, if I can surpass their expectations in a fraction of the time they think it's going to take, why should I still have to sit there for twice as long just because? And that, that's really how my consultancy started. I said, I just want to be paid for my time. That was how it first started. I believe that we have to come up with better ways, I think qualitative ways, which is the harder way to measure productivity. It can't be how much time someone's spending on something because we know proven black and white fact that time does not equal product. It just doesn't. I know consultants who have 30 years of experience and they get paid thousands and thousands of dollars, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars for their ideas, for their advisory work. Sometimes those ideas come to them in the shower in five minutes. And that five-minute shower idea turns into an eight-figure product for their clients. Should they only be paid for five minutes of their time? No. No. No, they should not. So we have to measure the value of the work, the impact of the work we have. And we can't be so lazy to measure how much time people are spending on their computers. My best ideas are when I'm jogging, when I'm driving with the music off. That's when I come up with my ideas. All the time, 100% of the time, I do not come up with ideas sitting at my desk. How do you measure that? You can't. It's unfair and it doesn't work and people are done with it. And I think it goes back to the structures that you brought up. It's those structures are just old and they're breaking down under the, the this new hybrid, remote, global, digitally connected, instant world. It's all just different now. And so to try to put an eight to five button seat, I'm going to force you. Forcing doesn't build trust anyway. Someone can do that work in an hour. What am I supposed to do with the rest of the time? Oh, we'll heap on a bunch of additional work just because, and you get paid the same. You know, all of these old structures, I think are fundamentally just breaking down. And it's our opportunity as leaders to go, hey, there's a better way. And a way that builds trust. Alex, Aaron, we know spying on people doesn't build trust. Take it back to a relationship. Imagine spying on your significant other. Good luck with that. <laughs> Let's see where that goes. Those relationships did not end well for me. <laughs> It's just busted. But let's take it back to belonging because that's where this is. And again, I want to acknowledge something, Aaron, that you said, that Alex, you said, there are plenty of leaders who deeply care. They're very, very good at what they do. They inspire, align, engage, and empower their people. People feel lit up in their presence and they're doing their best work, achieving their potential, serving their clients, moving the company forward. So there's a lot of people out there and organizations out there like that. But Aaron, specifically for you, you, um, a part of your business is to focus on community, community building. So when people come and they join the upside, they get to be a part of a community. And then you have a way to celebrate wins and lift people up. Could you tell us more about how you approach community, that belonging component and how you lift people up to, to shine? Yeah, well, I think the, first and foremost, it's about having a value system around transparency. 
So when everyone feels like they have to put their walls up, when everyone feels like they have to have the smoke and mirrors that we kind of have to have in the corporate world, it, it doesn't create transparency. When we can be vulnerable, when we can be transparent, when we can show up as our full authentic selves, that's when we really connect with others. That's when we thrive. And that's when we see those wins. Wins in the upside are not brags. Wins are, I just landed the biggest client of my life. It's a $200,000 contract. I couldn't have done it without. And they're going to tag all the people in the upside who helped them along the way or help them structure that deal. Couldn't have done it without these people. So we call it wins and gratitude. So it's, here's the win. Who's This is who I'm grateful for, for helping me with that win. And it's not to brag. It's to inspire everyone else to say, the other people are going, wait, I do the same thing as that person. And they just closed a $200,000 contract. That's the kick in the butt I needed today. And now I'm going to get on the phone with that person and ask how they did it and ask if they have any advice because I want to do that too. I didn't know that was possible. So I think also revealing what's possible through others' wins is so motivating. We have estimated in the upside about $30 million in economic advancement for our members. That's a lot. That's a lot of money that was left on the table before. When when I talk about those 100,000, 200,000, or even 50,000 contracts, that's money they did not have before. To me, that's inspiring. That is the win. Love it. I love the, the, the we can win together mindset. And often that isn't the case, right? Where people hold things close to their vest. Or if I tell you how I did that, that means, you know, it's that... Um, that mindset, it's not a growth mindset. It's not an abundance mindset. It's a fear-based mindset of I have to hold things tight or, or there will be less for me. So it's, you built it into your culture to go, no, hang on. We're all going to win together. All boats will rise if we help each other. Yes. You might've taken that from my LinkedIn. Yes. All boats will rise. I say a, a rising tide lifts all ships. And that is true in the upside. That transparency is absolutely core to what we do. Also, when you're a consultant, you're working in a vacuum. You're solo for the most part, unless you've scaled up your consultancy. Yes, you're working with clients, but you're working in a silo all the time with the community behind you, supporting you, advancing you. It it replaces that feeling of having colleagues. You have a place to go for questions. You have your people. Without a community, when you're a consultant, you're just on your own all the time. Mm-hmm. And most people don't want that. And you can't succeed on your own. Ask anyone in the upside or beyond the upside who's a consultant or advisor. And you say, how did you become so successful? The first thing they're probably going to do is talk about the people who lifted them and helped them along the way. Aaron, I love all of the effort you put into building this open and trusting community. And one of the things that we think about a lot is that the future of work is the future of learning. And you are absolutely supporting learning for your members. And you've got this great accelerator program. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And specific to how we're seeing the world, how do you help your clients and members embrace continuous learning as something that they must do on an ongoing basis? This this idea of We went, we got our degree, we're done, that's over. So how do you help your clients with that? Well, first of all, it's embracing uh, the fact that all experts are still learning. 
So if you claim to be an expert and you are not still continuously learning and reading about your subject matter expertise, you're not an expert. So that's something that um, goes both ways because a lot of people will say, well, I'm not an expert in what I do because there's still so much for me to learn. Yes, that's all experts. You're not an expert if you're not still learning. The day you stop learning, the day you stop absorbing information is the day you're no longer an expert. And that is just a fact. So understanding that mindset that you will always need to continue learning if you plan to be an expert, that's foundational right there. Second of all, everyone who goes into consulting, they feel confident in their skills. They're good at what they do, what they've been doing for 20 years in in corporate life. Everyone feels really good about that. So they say, oh, I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to do this for clients. That's great. But the business of consulting, they don't know. The business of the business. How do you get clients? How do you conduct that first meeting the right way? How do you send a proposal? What should the proposal say? What shouldn't it say? What should my contract look like? How long should I wait for them to respond? What should I price my services at? Like, What should the scope be? What kind of boundary should I have in place? How do I balance working on the business versus working in the business? Oh, wait, I have to now do my taxes. Shoot, who's keeping my books? I mean, you have to, it's a business. It's a business and you're wearing all the hats. The good news is there's a support system out there, um, lots of support systems, lots of products and services, SaaS-based services to, to solve these problems, but you have to know where to go, what to do. So it's the business of the business, even as simple as the first step. What am I telling people I do? If you can't get that out in 10 words or less, you've got a problem. Tell me what you do and who you do it for and keep it succinct so that I can remember and so that I can think of you when the opportunity arises. That is the first step and the biggest mistake people make. They go on and on about what they do, on and on and on and on. They don't know how to give an elevator pitch. It's less than, it's pushing the button pitch. Like that's how long you have. Like it's not even an elevator ride. It's 10 words or less. What do you do? We have short attention spans these days, my friends. So what do you do? That's why we had the accelerator because it's not, it's not, this is how I made a million dollars in consulting and I'm going to teach you all my secrets. That's not what this is. What this is, is I've worked with thousands of people in this space. Here is collectively what works, what doesn't work. Here is the step-by-step roadmap of how to build a profitable and successful consultancy business from the ground up in a way where you are filling your pipeline with clients that you absolutely love and attracting the right audience and charging the right rates. That's what this is. This isn't, let me show you how I did it, folks. You know, I went from broke to a millionaire. Like you see these things all the time. YouTube videos. You see these all the time. What I'm doing is not, it's not about my story. It's about the thousands of people I've worked with and their collective story that collective data. I have a unique vantage point of being able to see from a bird's eye view, everyone's prices, everyone's data, and understanding what has worked and what hasn't, what challenges keep coming up over and over again. Well, let's squash that in the accelerator before they even get to that challenge. So they never have to deal with that. So let's get personal here for a moment. 
your husband runs a substantial business, over 100 employees that he's responsible for. You have a very substantial business. You have two boys, 11 and 8. You love to paint. You have a Southern Bell homemaker in your DNA, and you also love to cook. And how do you guys manage it all? I'm just really, really wanting to hear more about that. How do you guys make the Halper household work? Well, first and foremost, there's a lot of communication between me and Mr. Upside, as we like to call him. Um, (laughs) He has no name. He's just Mr. Upside. There's a lot of communication. so. As a result, there is an equal division of work at home. So we constantly have communicated about that since we had kids. And when one of us felt like it was too much or unfair or even we speak up, we speak up about it and we listen to each other. So that's first and foremost. I think that's very unusual in most households. The other thing is we're both CEOs. So our nature is to problem solve and troubleshoot. Um, We're just used to doing that all day long. So it's no different in our household as well. So I think between constantly troubleshooting, looking to problem solve when things aren't awesome, or maybe we feel overwhelmed, we take a step back and say, well, what could we change? What could we, what could we outsource to to help run this household better so that we're less stressed? Um, You know, we've had an au pair, not the same au pair, but we've had hosted au pairs for the past eight years. Yeah, you know, that's except for during COVID, sadly. But other change. other than COVID, we've had we've had yeah, we've had um seven au pairs. Yeah, you know, that's problem solving, that's outsourcing, that's that's letting someone else drive the kids around so that we can focus on what we need to do. Do you have any crazy au pair stories you want to share quickly? Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. People, <laughs> I will tell I'll tell you a crazy story. I've had so many people ask me how in the world I have found my unicorns because all of mine are, we're close to every single one of them still. They all come visit every single year. They all come and visit us and stay with us. I know their families and their parents and their siblings. They are literally family. And people are like, how in the world did you find these people? And Alex, you know me. I operate on a certain level where I just need things to work and I created a system and I, so many people asked me about it, that I saved all my files in a Google folder. And anytime somebody says, how did you do it? I just send them a link to the Google folder. I'm like, I've listed it all out. Here's my process. Here are the questions I ask. Here's what I'm looking for. And, and people do say, you are crazy. But oh my God, it works. Like, like you're right. Like this is really, really good. I didn't think about this stuff. And it's intense, but that month of intensity gives me a full year of freedom. It's amazing. That's a really great point. All right, Aaron, we are going to take you into the TDW speed round. You have 30 seconds to answer these questions. And I'm going to start you off easy. You're stranded on a desert island and you can only bring three things. What would you bring? Uh, my two sons and my husband. Nice. Tell us one example of how your mindset has evolved over the last three years. My mindset's become a lot more tolerant of people, mm. a lot more open to people coming into business with different points of view, different lenses, experiencing life, walking in different shoes than I have. And it has only made me a stronger leader. That's great. What's a book or podcast that you've recently 
listened to, read, whatever, and loved it. I recently read a book written by one of our members, Jennifer Cassetta. The book is called The Art of Badassery. And I read it because she gifted it to me. Um, and I'm actually in the book. And so I was reading it just for that reason. And in the end, I was really blown away by how smart it was, how powerful, made a really big impact on me. I loved it. That's awesome. What advice would you give to men for better interactions with women in the workplace? Be better listeners. Mm. What is the most important piece of advice or coaching that you have ever received? A friend of mine and also a coach asked me a question once that just, it turned my world upside down. She said, why is being successful important to you? So sometimes I think the best advice is actually questions. Mm. And that question never left me. And it's a question I ask myself a lot, even though she asked me that a long time ago. So to me, that, that is advice. Asking, asking a good question is, is good advice. Love it. Aaron, this was amazing. Where can people find you? We're going to put all this in the show notes, of course, but what's the best way to get more of your insights, learn more about the upside and get in touch? Well, first and foremost, I'm really big on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. It's, it's a fantastic platform. There's only one Aaron Halper, as far as I know. So you can find me on LinkedIn, connect with me, drop me a note that you found me here on, on this amazing podcast so that I know where you came from. And our website's betheupside.com. We have three or four free downloads at this point. Get on our newsletter. I'm constantly giving out advice. Alex, you're on our newsletter. You're always replying to my newsletters with nice comments. So always giving out advice, free tips. I want everyone to be successful, whether you join the upside or not. So download those free guides, join the mailing list, and, and please you know, keep in touch. Thank you. Aaron, for being a model of female leadership as a CEO, a strong female leader, and a woman-owned business that helps other women turn their expertise into a successful independent consulting practice. Women are absolutely critical to America's and the global economy. In the U.S., women account for 47% of the workforce, and the only way to tap into our true potential is to keep women in the workforce and build a better pipeline for women in leadership at all levels. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me here. And thanks for inviting other people also to your podcast to give different perspectives, different points of views on disrupting the workforce. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.